Welcome to Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space. My name is Carter Laren, and I'm joined, as always, by the bad man and Jamma, Carrie Smith. Hi, Carter. Hey, Carrie. We're, both of us are very excited today to have a, a special guest. Yeah, I told, I'm, I'm going to try not to fangirl too much, but I'm so excited that she's joining us. I'm going to let you do the fancy intro, and then I can... <laughs> okay, good. Um, well, uh, with us we have today Helen Pluckrose. Helen is the editor of Aerial Magazine, a broadly liberal and humanist digital magazine which looks at culture, politics, science, and art. She's best known for her essays on social justice scholarship and activism and for her work on the Grievance Studies Project, uh, which if you haven't seen, by the way, you should totally go check out Dog Sex in the Park and other <laughs> things. Uh, her upcoming book with James Lindsay, Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody is out next year. You can follow her on Twitter at hpluckrose, and I'll also put links to her Aereo page and her upcoming book on Amazon in the show notes below so you can see that. So, Helen, welcome to Deprogrammed uh, on Unsafe Space. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> Before we get... So, I was just talking to Carrie about this beforehand. You have probably the, the deepest and most nuanced understanding of social justice uh, and the movement and the philosophy behind it of like anyone that I've seen think or write about this. Um, so I think we could get pretty deep into this. But before we do, uh, can you give people an idea of who you are, why you're talking about social justice? You were, you describe yourself as in exile from humanities. You were focused on late medieval, early modern religious writing by and about women. And now you're doing this. So what's, why, I guess, is the, the just to introduce yourself to our audience. Uh, well, I'm, I'm largely um, an empiricist and a universal liberal. So I'm, I'm very concerned that um, knowledge claims are evidenced and that our principles are consistent um, for everyone. That's, that is, is who I am ethically. It was who I was as a feminist as a critic of religion and now as a, a critic of the social justice scholarship and, and activism. So I, yeah, I have done um, um, undergraduate and postgraduate studies in literature and it was extremely difficult to look at writing by women or for women without using a particular feminist lens. So I, I found that extremely frustrating and um, at the same time as this was happening, my role in within liberal feminism, I, I've been a feminist forever, um, was was becoming harder and harder due to the, the rise of these really postmodern ideas about power and privilege. And so it all kind of came to a head. I, I was um, with James and Peter, we, we were mostly criticising religion. And because of where we are geographically, it was mostly Christianity. And we were criticising it for its unevidenced truth claims and its illiberal values. Then when this social justice movement really started gaining speed for about 2015, it was very hard for us not to notice that this is exactly the same kind of problem. It's a problem with knowledge, it's a problem with ethics again. And so we've, we've been addressing that quite consistently ever since. So I, I had um, one of the first, I was trying to remember what how I first met you online, met you. <laughs> but mm. I think one of the first pieces I read that really stuck with me and, and I've used it over and over because it helps me explain social justice and how it's different from liberalism 
um, was your piece, uh, no liberal lefties are not right wing. Mm. So I send that to people all the time because um, I don't know how much you know about this program, but deprogrammed is, is a little bit about the social justice ideology and my specifically, I was in it for like 20 years, but a lot of times I don't have the, or I'm searching for the right language to, to help other people understand it. And so that piece of yours was excellent because you broke it down into radical left, uh, liberal left, and identitarian left. Mm. And I was wondering if you could just briefly explain your view of the, what are those, what are those different categories? Yeah, certainly. Of course, I should do the, declaim, the disclaimer first to say that it, it doesn't really break down quite this easily. But these are the three, three main currents with some overlap and, and um, variation. So it, when we're talking about the liberal, that we'll talk about the radical left first. This is the one that comes from the Marxist um, understanding. It's, um, it sees society as oppressed and oppressor classes. It looks very specifically at economics and at social class. When it goes into feminism, it tends to treat men and women as um, oppressor and oppressed classes in the same way. It sees women as having been socialized into domestic roles in order to support, um, to to make workers for a capitalist system. So radical feminists um, believe gender is completely a cultural construct, so they don't accept trans identity. The Marxists um, generally believe in objective truth. They believe in evidence and reason. They're not terribly keen on all this identity stuff. But they also think that, the, that liberalism with the freedom of markets and the freedom of individuals is um, largely a myth. So then we have the, the liberal left. And they tend to be... They're economically socially democrats. So they, they want... Um, to tax the, the richest uh, most, most, they want uh, nationalised healthcare, they want um, a strong safety net, but they're very much about uh, freedom of the individual. So they will support a regulated capitalist system. They are open, they want freedom of speech. They believe in the marketplace of ideas. They think this is how, how good ideas survive and bad ones die. Mm. And then we have the social justice or identitarian left, which has come out of a strange mix of both the radical and the liberal and they see they they see society as structured of systems of power and privilege which are invisible to most people so it lies just beneath the surface now that we've sorted out the laws it's illegal to discriminate against women or people of color and it's um you know, male homosexuality is legal, same-sex marriage. There's few legal battles to fight now, if any. So it's all about discourses, biases, and attitudes. And their job is to discover these beneath the surface of what seems like a nice liberal society, draw it to everyone's attention, and um, have it dealt with or, or punished. Sometimes I think the best way to understand the difference between them is, is by understanding how they see power. So for Marxists or materialists, um, power is something that presses down. The, the rich oppress the poor um, quite knowingly, and the poor may not be aware of what's happening. For the social justice or identitarian left, power works through discourses, ways of talking about things. So people, certain understandings of society will become established as knowledge and then everyone will repeat it. So power sort of circulates through society, through the speech of everyone who is not woke to it. For liberals, power is more, is 
is something which people can have and they can abuse. It's either an individual decision um, to abuse to abuse power and oppress people, or it's the uh, operation of dominant groups in society. But everybody knows what they're doing. For the social justice people, they don't think that we know what we are oppressing. We're so we're so um, socialised into it that we're just um, reciting what's been written on us. <laughs> and this is a uh, you, you, man. There's a lot to unpack there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, You've mentioned, I mean, you have a really um, interesting article called Why, What Social Justice Gets Right. And in that, in that article, you mentioned that um, there's a tendency to want to reject everything that the social justice movement claims is, is quote, problematic um, mm. outright, when in fact, um, it's not necessarily all completely wrong. It's the approach or the conclusions that they draw are wrong and what one of the things that you just made me think about was um this idea that i think you write um let's see they would do they do well when they advise us to be introspective about this so that you're talking about biases that we might have and examine our own thought process honestly and then you write unfortunately this is often not what they advise so mm. you talk about um it's really almost rather than saying hey we might have these biases let's let's be introspective about it they're, they're looking at this from a, we're going to um, almost make a moral uh, judgment against you and look at everyone else and ins assume we know what's going on in their minds about why they're doing this stuff. Is that correct? I want to, it's a nuance, but I want to understand it. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely correct. It, it's a lot like uh, priests taking confession, deciding what is a sin and what isn't and what should be done about it. But in this case, the individual doesn't have to confess anything. They are racist by just because they're white. They are sexist just because they're male. And because we have this very postmodern Derridean idea that um, the intention of speech is no more uh, authoritative than the impact of it, someone can tell somebody else what they meant, what discourse they are speaking into. So you might say something which you didn't think was racist. You had no thought of race in your mind. But if somebody else experiences it as racist, then you have to acknowledge the reality of that and apologize and, and try to do better. It seems almost like metaphysically contradictory, though, to have this like there's no objective knowledge that we're trying to obtain. But I have objective knowledge that what you just did is bad because someone was offended. <laughs> so we we call we call the latest the last years reified postmodernism because it has now decided it has the objective truth which is that everything is culturally constructed in these systems of power and privilege so the first postmodernists couldn't have said that their reading of somebody else's words was the authoritative one but the the people that we have now can and they do <laughs> I have a question for you about um people who are identitarians or are in, do subscribe to these, SJ, what I call SJW beliefs. When I was an SJW, I, I've tried to explain this to Carver before, I didn't realize I was an identitarian leftist. I thought I was a progressive. I thought I was, I had like words that for it that I didn't really, I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about. And now that I have been trying to untangle this for a few years, when I talk to people who are clearly in it, 
and they're they're coming at me and trying to tell me this is the new definition of racism or this is the new definition of sexism and they're they're telling me the same things i preached for so long when i how, how do you i guess my question is how would you suggest helping people to see that their beliefs are not something that are magically in just poof that they that are in their head that that it, that it comes from that there's a word for it like when i talk about postmodernism or marxism their eyes glaze over and a lot of times they've never even heard of postmodernism so it's like they they can't how do you help people see that their ideas come from a place and that they have a history and that, and that they, um, it's, it's not necessarily, uh, they're not necessarily using the right labels for what they believe. So I, th I think this is on, on one level. I think we're, when we're addressing this, most of the time we're talking, uh, to people who aren't quite there yet, who have sympathies there, who are leaning that way, but are still open to universally consistently liberal, approaches then you can speak to them about the differences here and but when you've got somebody who is really really deeply embedded in it i don't think there is any one one way fits all answer to this if you know somebody i i recently uh, last year I, I started a conversation uh, with someone who was very deeply embedded in it but um he was willing to believe that i meant well and so we made some progress um, he he made some suggestions to me that um, of problems with my liberalism. I spoke to him and it, it went back and forth for a while. But in the end, unfortunately, he was shamed for having anything to do with me and um, decided he couldn't speak to me anymore. <laughs> of course. But, <laughs> yeah. But, That's awful. Um, yeah, so I, I, th I think there is, but it, it, unless somebody is open, I, I don't see much hope of getting through to those who are really buried in that system. I, I, you couldn't convince someone like Robin D'Angelo that she is wrong or that there are other ways to look at things. She's, she's so deeply embedded in, in her system. I think we have to change a society. We have to draw more people away from it and not have this, this prestige for these ideas so that there is is less incentive to to throw yourself in and, and get completely embedded in that kind of mentality in the first place it's difficult because they seem to reject the classically liberal idea that the uh the, the marketplace of ideas is is a valuable um mm. commodity and that we should be exchanging ideas and fighting bad ideas openly um, with discourse, they seem to just want to shut down conversation. Yeah, that that comes again from from the understanding of, of how society is constructed by discourses. So, if you really believe that what society is running on is dominant discourses that get reinforced by being spoken, you're not going to want them to be spoken. You're not going to see that you're going into a conversation where two ideas are doing battle on a level playing ground. That, that isn't possible. They'll just see somebody enforcing a dominant narrative and somebody trying to speak against it, but, but ultimately failing because society is against, is against them and with the dominant one. So they, they really see it as dangerous to platform or discuss with anybody who holds ideas that, that they consider to do harm to marginalized people. The Epistemologically, that just seems um, so nakedly wrong. It's hard <laughs> to understand how anyone could hold that. Do they not 
do they not understand their own i mean am i, am I wrong do they not understand their own kind of rejection of uh, reason and evidence and uh you know valid what i'll call you know scientific epistemology that they understand it and and they and they justify it and this mostly traces back to Foucault so I mean if, if we think how it, it's perfectly right for the queer theorists for Judith Butler for Foucault to say what was understood about homosexuality has changed incredibly quickly you know a hundred years ago it was still largely seen as a behavior that was um, sinful but medicalization was starting to happen by the 50s and 60s it was seen as a disorder that was shameful from about the 70s onwards, it's been some people are gay, get over it. So that's a really rapid change of, of dominant narratives. So is homosexuality evil, disordered or neutral? That's, that's happened so far. So you can see how this idea um, comes that people believe, um, particularly in, in science, in scientific narratives, and this is how they then speak to each other about it. And this needs to be unpacked. What they don't actually accept is that it, it wasn't postmodernism that unpacked and dismantled the idea that homosexuality was a disorder. That was science. That was the marketplace of ideas. That was liberalism. But they tend to think that only they... This, this is the worst thing about the sort of postmodern social justice approach is that they do believe they are the only ones who are woke, that nobody else can actually see that there's a problem. We can't argue ideas out. We have to be told what they are and become yes. woke to the right, to the right problems. In reality, over the last 500 years, we've overcome um, feudalism, theocracy, uh, you know, um, patriarchy, slavery, colonialism. We've, we've got past all of these and this was nothing at all to do with postmodernism. This was about being able to discuss ideas, to talk about moral progress and to actually make that progress. And specifically it was about the kind of classical liberal individualism, the idea that each human is valuable as a human on their own and these other traits aren't uh, relevant morally. Yeah. And the, the, the traditionally sort of broadest philosophically, liberal position and we always get into trouble when we use the word liberal because in the US that often means left and then classical liberal sometimes means libertarian but what I'm talking about is the the, the traditional um, liberal aim to make to recognize individuals to recognize our shared humanity to open everything up to everyone and to make society generally more free and more fair but they're they're claiming credit for what that idea has the progress that that idea has made in society? Mm. Or are you saying that the social justice crowd claims that the uh, improvement in the treatment of homosexuals and uh, minorities and genders is is because of social justice, not because of the liberal ideas? Liberal ideas. They're often reluctant to concede that any. Um any improvement has actually happened. So it's a, an actually, actually a central tenet of, um, of critical race theory that racism has not um, decreased at all. So that, that comes up with this um, interest convergence theory in which it's, it's quite a, a paranoid conspiracy theory in which every time um, rights have, um, 
have been extended to people of colour. This has been because it suited white people. So there's no... <laughs> I'm sorry. Some of their ideas, I just kind of, that's just, okay, <laughs> go ahead. So, yeah, you know, that, that doesn't pay any heed to the fact that, I mean, I'm over here in the UK, I think in the 50s, there was something like 80% of people who didn't want um, someone of a, a different race living next door. Uh, last year, it was 5%. So there's, there's been such a huge a change in racist racial attitudes. There's that, empirical evidence, but they that, don't. That means nothing. That they, they, they think this is why they object to liberalism. Critical race theory does. That's another one of its its tenets, is to object to liberalism because they think it makes an appearance of progress, but any small progress that is made is so slow that it gets swallowed up, and that white people then have some kind of contract to find a way to continue to keep black people down no matter what happens. So it's, they, they often don't admit that progress has happened. And within uh, queer theory, then we, we're always, we're constantly moving on to something, to something else, looking at oppressions and, you know, finding them in, in cis-normative language or whatever. And they're not inclined to see progress. Occasionally when I speak to an activist, they will tell me that, if I don't like identity politics, then I must have been against gay pride and liberal feminism and the civil rights movements. But I, as I've written and said to them many times, this is a different thing. It does need to be recognised. So I, generally, we're kind of torn between the claim that what social justice is, is just a continuation of those civil rights movements and the claim that there isn't actually... Uh, progress at all. I mean, Foucault himself said that um, Western se uh, secular democracy was the most barbaric and oppressive system the world had ever known. So, I don't know if you, um, uh, I don't know if you saw, but we just did an interview with um, Maria Tuscan, who is this oh. knitter, who, and I know you interviewed Catherine Jepson Moore, who did this great series for Colette about the social justice wars and knitting, and mm with the interview with Maria, we got um, an influx of new viewers who are knitters and a lot of them have left comments. It's almost like um, they've been trying to understand what was happening in their little microcosm. Yeah. So I know that you have thought a lot about, or you're interested in talking about like how social justice ideas move into and take over an enclosed space. Mm. And Given that we have some of these new viewers, if you were to try and explain what happened in their community to them, how would you do that? Mm. Like, how does it? How does these ideas spread? Yeah, I, I was just recently looking at, um, at Maria. Was it Tuscan? And uh, yeah, she of the the shiny white face, as somebody somebody said, didn't yes. they? And that seemed to be yeah. And uh, she she was urging uh, charity, kindness, and and reason essentially wasn't she and this has been seen as as racist as as whiteness and and this is is to do with the belief that whiteness is a kind of system which tries to look nice but is actually uh, very oppressive it, it hides everything under the surface but if you dig deep enough you can find it and so when poor maria uh, stuck her head up above and and said I think this is going a bit nuts now, then she became the problem. And th this is, and I used to say that 
I thought social justice ideas, postmodern ideas would burn themselves out fairly quickly because they are so contradictory. They're, they're not like Marxism, which can hold one truth and become totalitarian. It's too fragmented and, um, and different. But I, I think we're starting to see now that when social justice ideas get a hold within a closed environment, they can go very nasty very quickly. And so I, I'm looking back, we've, we've got enough examples of this now. I think that the first, that the kind of introductions to it was uh, with the Gamergate uh, stuff and then the, the new atheists. So with the Gamergate, we, we had a, like two completely opposing narratives uh, just bashing at each other. And it was very confusing to anybody outside of the system. I, I, I saw that this was going on and that it was extremely uncharitable, but I didn't follow it very well. And then it hit uh, my movement. So it caused a huge schism um, in the New Atheists because there had been two, two groups, really. There was one group who were, who were liberals and who were empiricists. We wanted to know what was true and we wanted things to be fair for everybody. And then there was another group of atheists who were very much focused on the social justice issues, women's rights, LGBT rights. They weren't so, so keen on what was true. And this caused a huge schism, which essentially broke up the atheist movement. And I'm, I'm not altogether sad about that. I think it, it had its day. I don't want to define myself by something I'm not for the rest of my life, but <laughs> it did it did destroy it. But then when we're seeing things that actually when when it's taken hold of universities, I don't know if you've seen the videos by uh, my colleague collaborator Mike Nayner on Evergreen University. Mm -hmm. what happened there and he with um, Benjamin Boyce have got have made some wonderful videos which really show how this built up and it was the it, it was one area of it really took over and it was the critical race theory it was the Robin D'Angelo ideas these there was there first of all there started to be courses on dismantling your whiteness and there was a, a lot of talk of this ideology Around And then once the university had said, yes, we do need to dismantle our racist, our, our whiteness, yes, everybody is, all white people are racist unconsciously, it had no choice but to go along with this. At, at, so at one point, the, um, the student protesters had actually taken the staff hostage and the staff had asked the police to, to step back. They got sort of caught up in this kind of madness that really yeah. was very, very dangerous. If any of your viewers want to watch this video, particularly on your knitting viewers, they've, they've um, felt the impact of it through the internet, which is bad enough. But have a look at the video and see how it, how it looks when you're trapped in a room with it. It, it, it was like a, a witch hunt. I and remember the, the part where they were asking the university president, he was talking to the students, and they were telling him, put your hands down. And he mm. was putting his hands down and then they were laughing gleefully yeah. because it was about exerting that power over him. It was really scary. Yeah, that's what I think we're, we're seeing as well in the, in the knitting um, community and in the young adults community. There's this underlying ideology where it is virtuous to problematize, to find evidence of racism or transphobia or something and, and call it out that increases your your virtue you also feel as though you're doing something because you know that there is this 
this horrible racist or, or cis-normative system underlying everything and oppressing people, and you can dig part of it out and make it visible. But at the same time, there is also a real kind of mean girls attitude going on. And, and boys can be, can be mean too, but it's a real sort of joy in bullying once their blood is smelled in the water. The, the circling is, um, I think it's one of the nastiest aspects of, of, of human nature. Well, let's talk about that for a second, Mean Girls, because actually, Carter, I've been wanting to bring this up with you. Some of the people in the comments, the knitters, have been asking, kind of circling that question of, I think one of them even said, I, I can't help but wonder if there were more men in the knitting community if this would have happened. Now, I know men, I know lots of men who subscribe to this belief system, and I know men can be mean, but do you think that this is... Do you think women are more susceptible to these beliefs? To um... I, 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 I do, but I, I'm not sure how useful that is because okay. in the same way that men are more uh, prone to physical violence, I think women, um, when they're the sort of most toxic behaviour, which is more common to women, is verbal um, nastiness. Right. So okay. I, I think, yeah, I'm. A, yeah, I, I'm. It doesn't surprise me that there is so much verbal bullying in a community, a social justice community, which is mostly female, because I, I think that is the um, the nastiest aspect of an unhealthy psyche. But just as yes, the majority of men are not violent, the majority of women are not verbal bullies either. But hmm. it's, yeah, it, it really is. It, it's something very nasty that has now has something virtuous to latch onto. You point out that Gamergate, though, and that's, I mean, the gaming community is, is overwhelmingly male. Mm. Um, and they still had an issue there, although women were involved mm. in that issue. There was still um, a lot of that uh, mean girls going on. Do you think there's, it seems from the outside, it seems like there's almost a, I won't say it's intentional, but it seems like there's this divide and conquer strategy where they um, there's a lot of effort put in one specific niche community and a lot of energy. And once they've mm. kind of triumphed there, they can take that energy and move to another community. And the people in that community feel very isolated because there's not uh, there's not a lot of people that rush to their defense because they're relatively unknown. So mm. unless someone happens to write a Quillette uh, series about your community very few people are there to come in and to rush in to support you. And so uh, it's almost rational that you kind of uh, succumb to the bullying because otherwise you, you, you know, you get completely ostracized. Yeah. I, I think, I think this is what we're, we're seeing again. I think this is how communities have policed themselves uh, historically, generally. And as you said, I look at the late medieval period. So I know how, this kind of how how powerful sort of public shaming and ostracism is and how important reputation is quite often social justice activists say well nothing really bad has happened he's just been criticized and no his reputation has been absolutely destroyed there's there's really not much that is is more destructive than that but yeah, I mean, with the, the early signs, and this was before this, this escalates, escalation of social justice ideas, with the Gamergate thing, this, this was a, 
feminist um, reaction and quite a lot of the feminists who are involved in it would now be considered white feminists by the um, intersectionals and there's the same kind of group with the new atheists but I, I'm starting to see more and more evidence of, of what what can happen when when an enclosed system uh, gets in, infected by it because I don't think social justice is taking over the world I think it's it's something like eight percent of people um, that hidden tribes things who actually hold any of these ideas to any degree at all but when they get social influence and they get power in a community and particularly when we're looking at the young adult books we've, we've seen um, Amelie Zhao and um, you're talking about it infiltrating the young adult novels like that area yeah with the problem that we've just seen in the knitting community that Catherine was telling me about and she was telling me that the names that came up over and over again were D'Angelo and Saad so this is very much connected to the academic literature also the the knitting community has a tendency to be uh, middle-class white women which is again the the uh, sort of center of these kind of social justice ideas and I, I think this is the same thing that we've been seeing happening in the young adult books as well where there's been a uh, young uh, one Asian woman one um, black gay man who have um, who have had to withdraw their books because it has they have been problematized by the community and it, it is so dangerous now for anybody to write about identity at all there's there's a significant concern that the young adult books are going to become either very anodyne or people just aren't then publishers just aren't going to be willing to publish anything about identity at all for artists particularly if, if you do um use uh, right characters which are, have a different identity to your own you're appropriating them but if you don't then you're failing to represent um, i noticed that they, they have a catch 22 yes they, you have to write i saw that and that it happened when that when uh when it it started to implode in that community writers were simultaneously being told your story your characters are not diverse enough and then if you did write diverse characters, it's like, well, stay in your lane. That's an expression they like to use. Mm -hmm. You don't know this experience. You can't write to it. So what yeah. are you to write about? Yeah, it's getting harder and harder. As you know, editor of Aereo, I'm getting increasing submissions from artists of various kinds saying they just can't create at the moment. Everything they do is problematized. They, they're restricted. And it, it's... It's significant that it's attack. It's this kind of ideology seems to be attacking the academic and the creative world, and this is where social justice ideas have the greatest dominance at the moment. They really are a quite, quite a sort of privileged group. So it isn't. We're not seeing, for example, lots of social justice ideas or protests in community colleges. We're seeing them in the elite Ivy League ones. We're seeing them in groups for um, people who have time on their hands, who have the money to in, to spend on on hobbies, who uh, on on literary research. There, it's it really is quite an elitist um, issue. <laughs> and you think that's that's just a function of uh, people with more resources just have 
more leisure time to sit around and contemplate their navel and white patriarchy and oppression? Or is there some other reason why it's the more elite universities? I, I think it is the, I, I think it is just generally a, a middle-class educated phenomenon. It claims to speak for um, marginalized groups, including um, the poorest people, but it, it doesn't actually seem to do that very much. It seems to, it seems to be wealthy and successful academics. And um, Catherine uh, wrote, didn't she, that, that quite a lot of the people who were causing the problems in the knitting um, group were academics as well and were citing academics. So it's quite, it, it's not a, an on-the-ground problem. It, it's a, it's a middle-class privileged issue. I think, and this is the, the criticism that a lot of the Marxists and socialists make of social justice, that it ends up ignoring um, class issues and economics and focusing very much on a small subset of society who are already in the sort of upper um, income bracket and have plenty of time on their hands to talk about attitudes and speech and not actually address uh, social issues very much. So... This, this reminds me of, I think you wrote an article about cultural Marxism not being a valid concept or a, maybe you mm. myth. Um, yeah. And I know a lot of people, including uh, us, we've, I've used the term before, although I, I do agree with your distinction. Um, a lot of people look at this and they, they just see, okay, Marxism is about stratifying people into different groups by class. And this is, they, they just replace the class groups with, identity and that's kind of why identity and power that's the way we've described it in the past um mm. but but you have um i think a more accurate description of why this cultural marxism isn't really the right way to describe this um and how I mean, it is distinct from marxism can you go into that a little bit yeah i mean it's uh, you can't discount marxism as an influence it certainly is um, Derrida himself, he, he set this out most explicitly in um, Spectres of Marx when he said he wanted to take some of the attitude and the spirit of Marxism and apply it differently. Um, and, and in that, he also said the one thing that's absolutely certain is that I am not a Marxist. And so the Marxists certainly don't have a great deal of sympathy for the postmodernists. But they, it did... They, they are kind of a wellspring for it. When in the late 60s, when a lot of leftist academics became disillusioned with Marxism because of the problems of communism, because it wasn't solving the problems in the way they wanted, postmodernism can largely be understood as a crisis of confidence. It was the idea that Marxism was this big overarching meta-narrative. It was this big explanation that it that covered so much and was the way to make a better society. And when that had failed, leftist academics were largely left thinking, well, can we trust anything? So the first, the systems that they criticised, the, the meta-narratives, the grand narratives, were, were Christianity, Marxism and science. So postmodernism can be understood as a reaction to Marxism, but it's what's really important to get the idea of is that it's it's changed its epistemology. Marxists are objectivists; they think they have the answer. They they are empiricists; they want to change material reality. 
whereas postmodernists don't think there is an objective reality they want to look at how we're thinking and talking so this is this is a very different conception of society and within academia there are still materialist scholars and um, postmodern scholars and they are very much opposed I've done an analogy this um, <laughs> some people have said this is useful if you can think of Marxism as Judaism and postmodernism as Christianity so in postmodernism you get some of the elements of Judaism you, it's got some of the main features but the central focus has changed and that's really important that's what it's all about now You're oh not I really like that yeah. that is very helpful yeah, so, but you don't see you don't see Christianity in Judaism, that that hasn't adopted any of it, and so that's kind of when you are speaking to someone who is a pure Marxist, you're not going to see postmodern ideas in there. So it's an evolution. I mean, how would it relate to the Frankfurt School then? Because in my mind, the evolution would be classical Marxists, then the critical theoreticians in the Frankfurt School, and then evolving into postmodernism after that. Is that a the right way to think about it, or is that totally wrong? Yeah, I, I think of it less as evolving as steps away from, because there are evolutions of Marxist ideas. There are materialist socialist scholars now, and they're still looking at material reality. They're looking at economics, law, politics, government. So they are, they are the evolution of the Marxists. They're less utopian, they're, they've uh, expanded their views, but they're still very much looking at this, the structures and material realities, whereas the postmodernists, the people we see now um, on the sort of discourse analysts and attitudes, implicit bias, trigger warning, safe spaces, they are coming from the postmodernists. But you are, um, yes, absolutely right to see these kind of steps because there were the, the Marxists and then there were the post-Marxists and the Frankfurt School and the New Left. These are, are all kind of little steps in slightly different ways away from Marxism and um, towards looking more at cultural impacts. So it, it's... <laughs> no, I guess, I, I guess to a lay, look, I'm not a philosopher, so I don't, I don't have a, a deep... Well, me neither. <laughs> to a lay person, it seems like, you know, in, in the Frankfurt School, you had um, basically this frustration with the failure of Marx to predict the kind of revolutions that they expected. Yeah. And when the revolution did happen in Russia, it was a totalitarian dictatorship. They had the yeah. rise of Nazism. And my understanding was it was like, they took kind of the Marxist class struggle, and they infused it with like Freud's repression a little bit, and and kind of developed, you know, Marcuse kind of developed this critical theory of like, okay, uh, it's the it's the repression that kind of is made worse by capitalism. It's, it's ultimately all kind of this anti-capitalist uh, agenda with, I, I view it as like philosophy developed to, as a weapon for the social change that they wanted. Um, yeah. and, and I, and I still think, I still see the Frankfurt school as kind of the genesis of this forgetting about Marxist classes economically and moving it into the, into the stepping away into this identity politics on some level. They still had different epistemology than the postmodernists, but mm. that was kind of the introduction of that. Am I wrong about that? No, no, absolutely not. I, I think, yes, you can quite accurately see the Frankfurt School as becoming sceptical of the simplistic, mechanistic um, aspects of Marxism, 
but not embracing the postmodernism. For example, Habermas is, as we know, was, was very critical of um, postmodernism. So we've got that kind of they're a kind of hybrid that that sort of fizzled out. If I, if you think of it as like like a a family tree of different kinds of of humans, the the Frankfurt School. It developed a bit towards the postmodern ideas, but it then kind of stopped. People aren't citing, our, our current suspects aren't citing Marcuse or Dorno, they're not. So, and then with the, those who called themselves post-Marxists as well, they were in a similar space of becoming disillusioned with the simplicity of Marxism and trying to expand their horizons, but they weren't quite developing any, any sort of concise theory, any, any real framework at this point. And then you have the radical new left, which was, had the, the really sort of Marxist revolutionary aim, but they're also focusing on identity. So they're, they're kind of like three, three full starts away from Marxism, but the one that has survived and, and evolved is the postmodern. So by the time you get to um, postmodern ideas and where we are now, when we're not considering class or economics at all, this can't really be considered an evolution of Marxism, but rather a sort of shedding of it in stages. Is it, is it so, the same for the postmodern? I guess to kind of bring it back to social justice, are the postmodernists kind of motivated by the same, uh, I'll say anti-Western or anti-capitalist or anti-Western, is that the same motivation as, as the earlier uh, schools or is it a different motivation? Okay, right. This this is a, a personal hypothesis of mine, but I'm I'm quite confident about it. <laughs> I think the the postmodernists and the Marxists today are essentially different personality types. So when when you've got the the Marxists or the the materialists, they are really interested in figures and um, and measurements of things. That they're interested in politics, law economics, things you can really measure. And so they don't have much patience for this deeply theoretical stuff about discourses and language and power. That's frustrating to them. But those who are within um, discourse analysis, they don't like to actually get their hands dirty with material reality. And so I myself am very much of this discourse analysis attitudes um how are we speaking about things how are we imagining things but i i disagree with them so i don't think they are they are coming from the same kind of place um psychologically intellectually yes and, and morally we've still got this concern for this care harm foundation mm -hmm. you know you know jonathan heights work yeah. on yeah, but can yeah. you explain that a little bit? Because it would be helpful, I think, to... Yeah, so um, according, according to um, Haidt, with his moral foundations, liberals and leftists is what he, he means mostly by, by this, are people who are focused on um, the justice and um, care harm. So it really is looking out for the more oppressed and um, the vulnerable in society, whereas conservatives have a fuller range of moral intuitions. So I think it is absolutely fair to say that both the Marxists and the postmodernists are concerned by elevating the vulnerable and bringing down the, 
the powerful that that's and that's absolutely true but they are coming in at it in very different ways so I, I don't know how much we could say they're they're aligned but one interesting thing is that the postmodernists like to sometimes draw on the marxists while the marxists don't want to be associated with the postmodernists. I mean, again, think of the, the Judaism and Christianity things. Christ, the Christians can, can have a lot of respect for Jewish texts. Jews are not going to have much for postmodern, you know, for Christian texts. But when we with, within the post the postmodern ideas, um, capitalism is one of the boogeymen. So alongside um, patriarchy, white supremacy, imperialism, ableism, and fat phobia, there is um, capitalism. And it gets lip service occasionally, but unless it's connected to another form of marginalised identity, it's not given much bandwidth. You you don't get a lot of um, sympathy for straight white working class men. So, what do you think is the? If you think of an ideology or ideas as something that's like living, and mm. and that can have an end goal. It, it, that may be a person who who subscribes to that ideology isn't cognizant of or doesn't particularly can't articulate that that's their end goal. What do you think is the end goal of this belief system? I think, I think because, they, sorry. Come. Well, because, because of what you're talking about, about how they focus on discourse and they, they focus on controlling the way that we speak and think. And so I have my own ideas about why that is, but I'm, I'm curious about why, why you think that's the focus and where does it have, maybe there's several different places that this ideology could end up, but where do you think it's heading? I, I think when, if we think of, of where they're intending it to head, it all gets very confusing because... On the surface, the, the idea is that we all become aware of the way in which our speech is perpetuating racism, sexism, ableism, etc. And then everybody becomes more careful not to do that. We understand more and more about how we're thinking. And then um, there's uh, a greater degree of social justice. That's, that, that is the thinking of it. But in reality, in the practice, we're just, because it is so interpretive and so theoretical, but all that is happening is that we're finding evidence of racism in more and more subtle um, ideas. So saying that you think the best person for a job is the one who should get it is now um, considered a racist microaggression at some universities. So it's not, it doesn't look realistically as though it is going to stop at any time. And one of the, um, and that, that's something that Robin D'Angelo in particular will say over and over again. Nobody is ever done. This is, there is always more to uncover, always more to, to unpack and to understand. So it's, it's very difficult to say what the end goal was. I've tended in the past to think that the end goal would be that it would disappear ultimately in a, in a sort of clash, in a puff of contradictions. <laughs> because it... <laughs> It, it doesn't really work. You, you can't really, I mean, if you look at the contradictions within the activism, we have a problem with uh, modesty um, constraints on women. We have slut walks because women are judged by their sexuality. But and yet we also have um, support for gender specific modesty um, dress when um, the wearer is Muslim. 
because this is a this is post-colonialism coming up against feminism and post-colonial guilt is winning out and then we've also got a clash quite often in individuals when it comes to critical race theory and LGBT rights because um, and particularly in America because African Americans are more likely to be religious there's significant evidence that they're less likely to support LGBT rights than the average white liberal so trying to cram both of these things together often doesn't work so I've been hopeful that, that it, it would just tear itself apart but as it's become more and more concrete over the last sort of 10 years, um, in my book, I, I look at three case studies of this, which are really written very clearly. This is how society works. There are structures of power and privilege. You are racist. It's not possible for you not to be. It's becoming much more totalitarian. And so on the one hand, this is very alarming because people can... Um, young people can understand it. Um, if they're idealistic, as, as they so often are in universities, they want to fix the world, they can really internalize it. But on the other hand, it's quite a good thing because we can, we can see it now. We can argue with it. it. We can understand what they're coming. So I, I think we are moving into the death throes of it. But what worries me is what is going to step into its place. Are we, gonna, um, are, we, are we going to sort of step up to the plate and fix liberalism and reinstate that or are we going to see the right um step in instead yeah are we, are we going to go backwards is social conservatism going to have a comeback because of this i think i think that is an amazing like fascinating question because i mean just seeing it play out with people that i know who have who like myself have left the ideology um mm -hmm. carter and i have talked about this I still, I still consider myself a liberal, certainly a social liberal. I'm still trying to figure out libertarianism. Am I, am I not? I, it doesn't really matter that much to me, but, but I also know people who have left it and gone way over in this other direction. And mm. we've talked a lot about, um, about, well, you know, the whole idea of for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so I am often afraid that they're creating this um, authoritarian, white identity, this, this sort of right wing boogeyman that they want to exist. I, mm. I wonder sometimes how big that is growing as a backlash to this. Mm. I mean, that, that's something we've, um, James and Peter and I have argued a lot that one of the main reasons for sorting out um, social justice and, and postmodern ideas is because it is encouraging a surge to the right. But we, we can't measure that. It's obviously not the only reason that the US and the UK now have conservative governments, why there's a, a rise in populism and nationalism and anti-intellectualism. I, I think there's a number of causes for that, but it, it's certainly not helping. And there is, it's just a thing that we humans do. We seem to think that if some extreme idea is coming is coming at us from one angle we have to push back with something as extreme so we're likely to see someone saying men and women are no different at all it's all socialized uh be responded to by men and women are profoundly different and they have natural roles in life both of those are equally wrong but trying to get people to stay um in the middle where the truth is that men and women are overlapping populations with strong trends of differences but this tells you nothing about any individual is is a losing <laughs> Battle. I love you, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, part of the part of the frustration, though, it seems to be that um, 
when people don't have the understanding of of what you're talking about, like classical liberal values, um, and they don't understand the difference between universal principles applied liberally and uh, this kind of group tribalism, and mm. they just see society telling them, hey, we're all tribes, uh, this is how we have the tribes organized, and these people are, are, are inferior and these people are superior, you know, do this, they're just going to pick a, a different description of the inferiority and superiority of those tribes and jump into the tribe that they match as a, as a result. They're not thinking, uh, they're not really stepping back and thinking about how, hey, we don't actually have to be divided by tribes at all. Um, mm -hmm. It's that framework that's a little bit scary to me. Yeah, and I've, um, did you, have you seen Nicholas Christakis's um, book, uh, Blueprint? No. The Makings of a Good Society. He, it's a wonderful book, and it, it, it speaks to is this. He the, um, is he the professor, just quickly, is he the one from Yale who got yelled at? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For, for, for people who are watching, he, he was the subject of an SJW kind of mob. Yes. Um, Erica Christakis, his wife, uh, wrote a letter saying, let's trust students to use their own judgment about Halloween costumes and not police them so heavily. And um, this was um, taken very badly as, um, as justifying um, cultural appropriation. And, and there was a lot of horrible uh, screaming at poor Nicholas in the, um, in the courtyard of the university. And he eventually left his role as dean there. But he's written a wonderful book on the elements of society. And he's, he's looked at so many different groups, which have either voluntarily or involuntarily um, made their own communities and what has worked and what happened and what hasn't. And so one of the things that he finds human societies do do, they, they, they kind of need, there is this tribalism and there is a mild hierarchy. So we have in groups and out groups and it's not very realistic to imagine that we could ever get rid of them entirely, but there are better and worse ways to act on them. Now with the growth of liberalism, and this is where, where Stephen Pinker's Better Angels comes in. We've pushed out the circle of empathy. Really about, you know, as, as further and further, we've, we've started to universalise, to recognise that people who are a different colour or a different nationality are still humans like us. We've, we've learned to empathise with them. And this is, this is a development of, of liberal democracies. And now we're seeing this start, this, these circles start to close in again because of the polarization that is growing. And that is really much more, much more normal to us. I mean, what worries me is that the kind of social justice postmodern ideas seem to think that reason, evidence, science, universal um, liberalism, individuality was the default, and they need to um, deconstruct that, when in fact their way of um, going on stories and, and experiences and and tribes is the human way that we we took a we took a few centuries to mitigate in modernity. Modernity is a really weird and unusual phenomenon, and it has worked so well. And now we're we're trying to dismantle that. It's now seen as naive to value evidence and reason and and science. And <laughs> yeah, you, there's a you're making me want to quote you to you, but I, I, I have to because it's a beautiful paragraph. At the, I think it's at the end or close to the end of one of your articles. Um, and you're talking about Western values and you write, 
Sometimes these values are referred to as Western values, although rational, empirical, secular, liberal democracies exist everywhere. Nevertheless, the enlightenment and the formation of the scientific method in secular liberal democracies did form and take root in the West. We, the lucky inheritors of them, should not take them for granted and neglect to defend them, not because they're Western, but because they've proven their effectiveness at facilitating the advance of knowledge and the progress of human rights and equality. That to me is sums up in a nutshell exactly <laughs> why I feel compelled to fight uh, this, this ideology. It's because this is an experiment. Uh, mm. This Western, we'll say Western, but it's this, this liberal democracy, this idea of, of expanding, as you're saying, expanding that empathy circle. This is an experiment and it's an aberration in, uh, for all of human history. It's, it's unusual. And mm. it's very scary to think that we could, this, this could all be lost. And it's very tempting for a lot of people to collapse back into the tribalism, which is, as you're saying, part of our nature. Yes, precisely. I, I think um, this is something James says a lot. It's um, the social justice ideas, they, they get everything backwards. And because we have such a strong sense of reciprocity, that's how our justice um, works. It's, it's actually the same for, for most primates. There's a wonderful experiment that Franz de Waal does um, trying to pay monkeys unequally. I, I recommend anyone to, um, to search that. This. Is this the one where yeah. he gives them different uh, grapes for one and something better yeah. for the other? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we have this fairness and this reciprocity. And what social justice are asking us to do now, uh, those of us who are considered privileged, is to, to suspend that, to allow different rules for, for other people, to, um, for, for men to endure sexist insults for white people to put up with racist insults because of the way they see the systems of power you can't be sexist to men you can't be racist to white people just sit down and take it that isn't in accordance with human nature perhaps some people can be saintly enough um, to overcome their natural reaction to right you're going to be racist to me i'll be racist to you but most people won't what we're much more likely to see and what i think we are seeing is a return of um, traditional gender roles and um, and white identity, which is really very dangerous for the majority identity to start seeing themselves as an identity group. It's it's unlikely to end well. It's yeah. not likely to end well for for women if um, if men um, find themselves being uh, constantly belittled and disparaged either. They're, we we see some. I've seen some genuine misogyny recently. Yeah, you, I mean, <laughs> so this brings up the question that we we talked about earlier in terms of end goals. Is it too cynical for me to like? I I sometimes cynically think the end goal is is, you know, hard to identify because it's not a positive one. But it's very mm. easy to identify if I just view it as a negative one, it's, which is just destruction of Western values. Like everything seems to align only with that. And I don't see anything else, any other end goal that makes sense. But that certainly seems to fit every instance. Well, it, it does because this is, as I keep saying, and, and people keep doubting me, this is post-modernity. This post-modernism means we are so over modern modernity. That is what it, so everything that came up in that time is now seen as a problem. And that's, 
yeah, that that's if you, if you call that Western values or or secular liberal values, that that is what they are challenging most most strongly. I think there are still far more people who hold them, and that's why it's often so difficult to argue back with them because people try to argue with them using using reason, using evidence, um, and using a sense of, of fairness. So, well, how would you like it if I said that about you? But they don't understand that this isn't how social justice ideas work. So they're, they're kind of talking past each other hmm. all the time. The people who don't, the people who are just coming into contact with it don't understand it. You're exactly, mm. yeah, you're exactly right. And I think that's why um, it, it can be easy in these enclosed communities sometimes for, for it to take root so quickly because they're just coming into contact with it for the first time. Mm. They're seeing their friends day by day start to convert when there's like this mob, mob stuff happening. And they're basically being asked to accept. Um, it's almost like you said earlier in the, in the episode, it, um, once, once it's like once they've accepted a part of it, they've accepted it in whole. Like once that university started teaching, once once Evergreen started teaching these ideas about toxic whiteness, it's like you are now beholden to it. Mm. You've accepted it, almost like a, like a accepting it as your Lord and personal savior or whatever. But this is now you. I think sometimes people will give in to a part of it without realizing that they've just made themselves um, beholden to all of it. Mm. Yeah, I, I think it, it can creep up like that. From what um, Catherine was saying to me, it, it seems like there were a few main um, sort of ringleaders who had a really strong understanding of um, how the social justice ideas work, um, discourse, knowledge, power, and, and used that. And then a lot of other people have, have fallen in line. And that, that seems to be be how it works and I, I think what we have to do and it's, it's what my team and I are trying to do is make the ideas accessible that's that's what our, my book um, tries to do break them all down and then articulate a better alternative because the problem is we haven't had to we haven't had to defend secular liberal democracy it's it's always been that the people who were the problem were against social justice so actually trying to use liberal principles to oppose something that's calling itself social justice and progressivism is really very difficult nobody wants to feel that they're against social justice and they also don't have the ability to really articulate what liberalism is they just say but this isn't fair but this isn't reasonable you you just have to treat people as individuals but they we've not had to grow we've not grown up having to argue that it's just been accepted so now it's it's difficult to for a lot of people to really put into words the problem that they feel and they see but they you can't quite get at it <laughs> yeah that's part of our goal with this show is we want to I, I consider us doing like the dumbed down version we're like <laughs> I mean but I really want to make it um so that people who are just butting up against it like like this guy i met who he's some good old texas boy who is having issues with his kid's school and he's just it's like an iceberg and he's just touching the tip of what this ideology is and he's trying to wrap his head around it and and um you are 
I, I, this is the part where I fangirl out. <laughs> like Carter said at the beginning, you have this just an amazing mind and an amazing mm -hmm. ability to see all the parts of it. At least me looking at you and listening to the way you talk and what you write about. And it's like you can see all the parts of the iceberg that there's still a lot of the iceberg that's uncovered, that's, that still remains to be uncovered for me. But it's like you're, you're looking at it and you're providing this map. And um, I'm just, I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing. Because I, this used to have me in its grips. I was out there like a zombie pushing this on people. I was in, during Gamergate, I was on the wrong side. <laughs> like, I was on the social justice side. And there, I still, I know a lot of people who, um, who are still, who still subscribe to these beliefs. And I know people who are just coming in contact with it, who I think um, Carter's more concerned with the, the people who are not already in it. Right. Like, mm -hmm. yes. like we, we sometimes go back and forth. As many people as Carrie, I'm trying to inoculate people. <laughs> yeah. He's like, Carrie's trying to save people from it. I'm just trying to inoculate people from entering it. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I'm just, I'm, I'm very grateful for the work you're doing and I'm so excited for your book. When, when is your book coming out? Oh, not until the 5th of May, I think. We're going to try and see if we can bring it forward a couple of months, but um, there's so much to do with uh, getting blurbs and, and um, editing and everything. It seems to take a long time. But, but thank you. I mean, I, I, think, I think I kind of got us lost in the weeds a little while back when we were, were talking about the Frankfurt School and the <laughs> Marxism and postmodernism. I blame you for that. That's my, own, uh, <laughs> that's my own curiosity that drove us into there, I think. Um, <laughs> You know, something that you just said that I, I just want to, I want to underscore because I think it's one of the most valuable points that I've heard someone make on this in, in a while, um, mm -hmm. is this idea that we haven't, we've been taking Western civilization, we've been taking, well, I don't say Western civilization, I'll say, I, I don't know what best to call it, like science, reason, uh, the kind of liberal ideas we've taken for granted. And so that's the starting point that everyone has when they're, trying to have a discussion about anything. And this is the first time someone's coming along that is not coming from the same starting point. And so we don't know how to defend it. And I, I love that you pointed out that I, and I hadn't, I can't believe I hadn't thought of this before, but postmodernism literally means we're over it. Like we're, <laughs> it's what Western civilization is built on. Like it means yeah. kind of over the enlightenment experiment. We're done. With, yeah, exactly. And it's just so hard to even comprehend that anyone would seriously say that after the successes that mm. modernism has bestowed upon humanity, uh, that it's almost, maybe people are just incredulous that there could be someone that would seriously argue against modernity. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in our, um, James and I wrote a, um, a manifesto against the enemies of modernity and we were looking both at the, at the pre-modernists and the post-modernists because they, they kind of work as a parallel so the post-modernists will say yep yeah, this was just a white male masculinist imperialist um, framework which has been set up to be true for everyone and it's actually very oppressive and uh, we need to sort of break things down again and, and then have uh, small mini narratives for local groups. And then the pre-modernists tend to see modernity, they're, they're kind of right wing, they're um, often sort of religious conservatives or sometimes really, really nuts um, libertarians who live near Jim, which is uh, how he knows about them. Like Carter. And they, okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I, I think you're probably not quite as um, as quite quite like these ones that uh, message us sometimes, and who say that modernity was um, generally a bit of a mistake because it took us away from the word of God or from natural law, and uh, put I, all I the am an atheist. So I, I'm not likely to make those arguments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it even happens sometimes with with atheists. They've they've got this idea that um, expertise itself is uh, is suspect. That people know best from their common sense and from what they've learnt from their families and their traditions, even if they're not religious ones. And so they can see reason and science as um, as equally equally as um, as sort of problematic and constructed as as the postmodernists can. We've had people using um, Hayek's arguments um, for this, anti-rationalism and, um, and anti-science. So it's, I think it's a thing that is natural to humans. We, we don't trust things that we can't fully understand. We trust things that feel familiar, that feel comfortable, and we tend to catastrophize. So really kind of maintaining this, this wonderful framework that we have, where we have experts, where we have peer review, where we have um, systems in which people specialise and um, and gain knowledge in things, and then we use it um, for all of society, and everybody can argue with it. There's no sacred knowledge. It can all be, it can all be argued with. It can all be, be sort of qualified or, or whatever needs to happen to it. It's it's really quite counterintuitive to us to to do this if we're left to our own devices we will retreat into tribes and believe in magic I, we just sure. we will <laughs> so i you know i don't know if you're a parent or not but the you know getting back to the me wanting to inoculate and carry wanting to rescue people a, a little bit more my, <laughs> my burning i have one big burning question for you which is as a parent or an early educator what can you do to inoculate the next generation from being susceptible to this kind of ideology? Mm, well, um, when they're a bit older, and I'm, I'm writing my book essentially for my daughter, she's 15, and I want her to read it before she goes to university. Actually, she has no interest in it, and I think she's inoculated already, but that is what's, what I'm trying to do. But I, I think as, as children are growing up, you know, you can talk to them about liberal principles and you can explain to them how they work. I think that children generally understand this concept of fairness anyway. You know, even if they're really tiny, you can say, to, you, can, you can show them pictures and you should say, you can say things like, look, all the, these boys are this colour and this boy is a different colour. And now this boy wants to play with this boy. Should he be allowed to? And the child is, is almost certainly going to say yes. And you've got rid of an illiberal idea and you, you can kind of explore these ideas with them if, if they're tiny. You could say, so do you think this boy's grandparents said this boy's grandparents shouldn't have any rights? Can these boys be friends or should this boy say sorry to the other one? They're, going, they're likely to say, no, they're friends. They, they didn't do it. The granddads should apologize. Do you see what I mean? Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. You, can, you can kind of make stories out of... Um, out of, out of liberal ideas, out of sort of universal fairness of it, an individuality that kids can really, really understand intuitively. And I, I think that works as a kind of inoculation. Awesome. <laughs> we actually gave some thought, Jim and I, to writing a book like this that parents could use with um, primary school children that would have some, some cartoons like this, what is fair here, what is right. Oh, um, and do it. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, do it. 
<laughs> that was one of the examples we thought of and it would be you know I think getting kids to think that way is um would be helpful <laughs> you've used the you've used the phrase I think universal universalization or I've, I've heard you use this phrase of like universal values and uh just along the lines of what you're saying I have I did find one of the one of the useful things to do with my daughter early on was to just universalize everything. So if she, if she wanted to make a, a claim about something that was unique to her, I would just say, fine, we can accept that universal principle. Let's see how it applies. If we just apply it everywhere and it was very <laughs> clear to her, I'd give her examples of how it would apply to her detriment. Um, <clears throat> it became very clear that, oh, actually, it's better to be in a world where we, have, we all have the same rules that we're following, <laughs> right? Um, but yeah, I think I would love to see a book like that. If you guys want to write a book, for parents, uh, I concur with Carrie. Mm, I, I will bring that up again with Jim because I, I think that would probably be quite a lot of fun for both of us and give our brains a bit of a, a break. We're trying to um, we're trying to get really get to grips with critical pedagogy at the moment, and it's horrible. Yeah. Also, I think it's um, there's something. I mean, it's just, you're going to have fun. It's more whimsical. You're writing a kid's book, <laughs> <laughs> so and I think that we try to keep anyway uh, on this on deprogrammed or whatever try to keep things light sometimes and, you know, keep that sense of humor. And I think it'll be a good switch of gears for you after finishing this first one. <laughs> go to the kids book, do watercolor. Mm, well, I'm off um, next week. I'm going to go and speak to a, um, to a school. It was one, one of their sixth year, um, you know, 18 year old um, last year students asked me to, to come and speak and the headmaster okayed it. So. Oh, we're right to- Nice. Yeah, so I'm going to try and do a bit more of that. I'm, I'm thinking as well of um, trying to set up some kind of, of fun so that if student groups invite me, I can, and they, have, they can't afford my travel or accommodation if it's a long way away, I can afford to, to do that. And that would be, that'd be good. I'd like to kind of mobilize some more student groups, give them some more resources, have them um, you know, talk to them and, and have them tell me what's going on and, and think things through. I, I think talking to to students. I think students are our best bet at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I so, um, look, Helen, any, any other final, um, you know, final comments you want to make to people who, who might be watching and, uh, I don't know, are confused about social justice ideology and wonder what the hell's going on in the world. <laughs> I, th- I think most just try to be charitable, try to realize that they almost certainly do just want to make the world a better place, but be confident in saying, I don't, share your premises you know that um that there is no objective knowledge or that everything is culturally constructed or that certain people only certain people can sort about certain things be more confident in in saying i'm i'm a liberal and i i want to discuss things should be discussed on the merits of their arguments not on identity and things like that (laughs) great well um thank you very much for for joining us really thank you for having me (laughs) i enjoyed it I know we're going to put it in the um, video, but just remind people where they can follow you yep. online. And I know your book's coming out in May, but if they want to keep keep abreast of what you're writing about, where can they follow you? Yeah, uh, Twitter is best, and that's um, under H Pluckrose. <laughs> Great. And like I, like Carrie said, we'll put links to everything below. Thank you again, Helen. Mm-hmm. And, oh, oh, uh, oh, oh. One thing else, everybody, please read Kindly Inquisitors by Jonathan Rausch, and then you will be much uh, better positioned to argue for liberal values. That's, <laughs> that's great advice. <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having me. All right, thank, <laughs> you, thank you, Helen. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> Bye, Kerry. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Bye.